This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ullman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, I'm joined by Ramona Ortega, founder of My Money, My Future. This conversation was recorded in March 2021. To say, Ramona, I've known you for a long time, um, and I'm just so inspired and just blown away by the things you've been doing um, over the past 10 years. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Impact Report. Well, thank you. I'm like, so excited to be here. It's always great when, um, you know, part of my worlds and my careers come together because <laughs> people often um, forget that I actually did international human rights work for many, many years and um, a lot of social advocacy. And I think My Money, My Future is really just an extension of that. Oh, I would, I would have to agree with that. So full disclosure, Ramona and I met um, over 10 years ago at a community event um, in Queens, New York. And I mean, she's done phenomenal things since then, and we're going to hear about them during this conversation. Um, but I invited her here today to talk about her company called My Money, My Future. And let's just start there. So what was your motivation for founding My Money, My Future? Sure. Um, I think you have to put it in context of my sort of career before My Money, My Future. I was doing international human rights work in the context of how do we use international law to really solve for the racial wealth gap in the US, right? So you have massive disparities that um, really result in things like um, disadvantaged healthcare, housing crisis, um, criminal justice system being fraught with all kinds of problems. And when you look at some of those issues, you you can't miss the fact that they have a lot to do with income inequality, and the racial wealth gap in this country. Um, And I, you know, so I was working in human rights to figure out how do we address these issues from a policy perspective? And that was great work, right? And, but it's long work, it's systemic work. um, And it's it's taken 500 years to create these problems. It's probably gonna take us a while to get out of them. Um, And so one of the things that I learned though, when I was doing that work was that we also have to understand how sort of you know, in the in the context of a capital system, how do we actually address some of these problems, right? What about what is it about wealth creation that we're not understanding? What is it about the the financial markets that that how can we leverage them to solve some of these problems? And so I think that was a lot of the genesis, right? And so I, it really started actually when I decided to go to law school, and my the idea was that let me go to law school let me really understand the capital markets. I'm going to focus specifically on corporate law so I can understand how we can perhaps tackle this problem from another angle. And that's exactly what I did. And I ended up um, doing some great work while I was in law school. I was able to um, be a clerk for the summer with um, the chief judge in bankruptcy in the Southern District at the time who handled a lot of the uh, Chrysler cases and GM got a really good inside look on what happens when things fail, for example. Um, and then I ended up working at the SEC um, for the, in the summer honors program in the asset management unit during the time at which Dodd-Frank was being um, implemented. So this was another, just a moment in time, which was great to be inside um, the SEC when they were really trying to roll out a program around how do you, um, how do you really look at hedge funds and private equity and, and do compliance in a space that hadn't really necessarily been done before? So that was, that was awesome. I mean, you just got a deep understanding of, again, capital markets, like how does money run through the system? How are things um, set up to essentially, um, you know, in some ways, how are they set up so that they benefit some people and not others, right? Um, and so after that, after I graduated, I ended up doing securities litigation and I happened to work on one of the biggest cases at the time, which was the Madoff case. Wow. Um, uh, so that, I mean, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's 
right time, right opportunity, you know, right skill set, right? And that it was that merge, that merger is a, of, of opportunity for me. And so I worked on um, essentially at the time we were um, we were working on a class action litigation um, against JP Morgan Chase for their involvement in the Bernie Madoff scheme. And we were very, we were successful in that um, case. So it was, it was an awesome time to be in litigation, um, particularly in securities litigation, and then ended up working also on the John Corzine case, um, which was the fall of MF Global. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, because a lot of people don't realize is that when those companies essentially fail, they, they go into bankruptcy. So bankruptcy is actually a really big part of securities litigation because that's when sort of things all fall and um, all the chips kind of fall on the table. So doing all of that, it essentially gave me this crash course that I was looking for in understanding, I mean, literally the inside out, because once you're in bankruptcy and once you're in the SEC or in, in litigation, you see everything. And I think that's what people often don't realize is that you're just getting, I mean, you're getting documents, thousands of documents, you're getting emails, you're getting, um, you know, structured company structures, like understanding how things are structured, how offshore accounts work, how LLCs work and family offices. And I mean, it's just the whole nine. And so that was just, I think, a real eye opener for me on many levels. One, realizing, wow, I literally did not get any information growing up on, but not just personal finance, like forget budgeting. I did not know anything about building wealth. And that started to sink in. And I was like, so that's part of the problem is that we just have no clue how to do this stuff. And it's not that you even need a billion dollars to do it. You literally don't understand, we don't understand the rules of the game. And that started to sink in. And I started asking my colleagues at the time, there was a group, well, it still exists, um, called Cafecito. And it's um, a group of Latina lawyers that meet up. It's kind of a networking group. And I would ask my colleagues who are, you know, partners at MG100 firms, what are you doing with your money? How are you investing? What's your plan? And the overwhelming response was, oh, I don't know. I mean, I kind of put money there. I don't do it. My husband does it. My my father does it, you know, but there was this real gap of confidence, I think, that I've seen around sort of being that person that's like, I'm an investor, this is my wealth plan, this is how I'm doing it. And I thought, man, we, if this is missing amongst us, then there's a real problem. And so I started looking at what was going on in the market around fintech. And that was, I would say, what we call fintech V1, which was the unbundling of the bank. Right, so all of these players were starting to say, okay, how do we make banking easier? How do we uh, sort of disrupt traditional financial services? And one of those companies was LearnVest. Um, and I looked at that model and it was essentially, how do you provide financial planning for um, you know, the, the normal family, the 99%? And I was thinking, well, that's great. I love that idea, but that doesn't speak to me as a woman of color, someone who grew up poor, who grew up working class, um, who didn't have any access to any of this information until probably really the late 20s, early 30s. So it didn't necessarily resonate in that. And when I looked around to see who else was building products for what I would consider for me, the first mover generation, um, you know, whether that's immigrant or first to go to college or first to get a traditional sort of corporate job. And I didn't see anybody addressing that market. And I thought, wow, that's a huge market. I mean, I'm in the market. Um, at that time, it's sort of like the whole millennial market. But if, even if you look at millennials, almost half of millennials now are multicultural, meaning they're non-white, right? And then if you start to even broaden that out and think about, again, first movers, like women starting to invest, women for the first time are going into like corporate jobs and C-suite, where, where are we addressing that market as well? And, and so when I, I realized that there was no one doing that, I thought, oh my God, this is kind of a gap. And that's when it really clicked for me. Um, so the first iteration of My Money, My Future was kind of, let's do a newsletter. And, you know, sort of the idea was how do we just make this information really accessible, culturally accessible, 
how does, you know, like think Latina magazine meets Forbes, right? Sort of Excellent. this cross section. <laughs> that was the idea. And I was going to continue to work as a lawyer. And that would kind of be my little side project. And then we started doing that. Um, and it happened that um, I was like, we need to do something that's in person. I was getting a lot of feedback, like, oh, I'd love to go to a workshop or I'd like to do something. And we decided to do a boot camp. And and the reason that came about was because one of the things that I that's also I see was that there's a lot of information in blogs. Like you can actually find tons of information, but where you like when you think about going to the gym, right? You could follow videos online on YouTube if you really wanted to work out, but you won't. <laughs> so what do people do? They go to boot camps, right? They pay someone <laughs> to like really show them how to do something, not just the what. It's the how, and that's what, from a, from a product perspective, I thought this is also missing in the market. People want to know how to do it. Don't tell me I need it. I know I need it. I know what it is. I just don't know actually like what are the steps. And so we had this um, one day boot camp in Los Angeles and it was a partnership with the city of Los Angeles Women's Commission. We had over 200 women come out wow. that day and one of the things that we did was I, I literally created the day as a model mock-up of what I thought a platform would be, right? So it was almost like, here's why you should do this, right? So the kind of opening, and that's what I think about is our content. That's kind of our moat, right? We produce content that's like, here's why you really need to do this as a woman of color. Um, and then it was about, here's the pieces that you need, right? So here's how to learn, here's how to grow, your money, here's how to um, invest, and here's how to protect your, your money, right? So that, that kind of intergenerational wealth piece. And so I started putting those things together and, and then the response was overwhelming. What, and and the, really it was, we want more and I wanna know how to do all of this stuff. And so that's really the, the genesis for the platform. And we call the platform Money Made Simple. Um, my Money, My Future being the kind of company within that company, we have the platform and the platform is the product really. Um, and so in 2016, after that, I decided to leave because I said, if I don't do this, someone else will. <laughs> and if they do, I'm gonna be very upset because I know that I am the perfect person to do this because not only of my personal experience, I, this is my own personal problem that I'm trying to solve and my communities. Um, but also the depth of knowledge that I have around this issue. I mean, having so many years, having worked on it from a, you know, an advocacy and policy perspective, understanding what it's like to be a user on the, on the other end of products, the, my legal background, I was like, if not me, whom? And um, so I took the leap. That was a big one because I was leaving the only financial security that I had built for myself. <laughs> Yeah. Right. As a, as a, as a lawyer, as a litigator, um, and especially as a Latina litigator, there's just not that many in, in Wall Street. So <clears throat> I was taking a big risk. Um, and, you know, it's, it's paid off in, in so many ways. I mean, not necessarily all those financially, but, but it will. Um, and I think that's part of the journey and something that I've learned um, that entrepreneurship just teaches you an incredible amount um, around everything from building products to financial modeling to raising. I mean, if you don't build, if you don't succeed, you don't eat. And I think that's part of what I love about it. And the fact that you are actually, you have the ability to change people's lives and what you're doing, right? And that's the big vision. The, the North Star here is how do we close the racial wealth gap? And when I thought about how to build out the product that is my money, my future, the, the idea was always, how do I digitize financial advice in a way that makes it simple to um, understand and then take action? Because the two biggest problems that we see are people are overwhelmed and they're confused, right? Yeah. Because back to the first point, we don't know the rules of the game. We don't know what each piece, if we think about a chess game, Right? I think about this a lot, but it's a chessboard. Each of those pieces has a very specific role. They can do certain things. That's financial products. Insurance plays a role, IRAs play a role, 401ks play a role, banking, but those are just products. 
they each have a, a very specific role in your financial plan when you're, or building wealth, right? The wealth building plan. How you maneuver each of those has an impact on the, the board, on the plan. And so what we don't understand, for, and me, we being the collective, my audience, multicultural millennials, first movers, we don't kind of know how all those things work together. Kind of, we know what a bank account, you know, we're banked, we have student loans, we get all the basics, but how does that all fit together? That's what I wanted to do was to be able to say, give people a, a roadmap. It's almost like Google Maps for your money. I, here's where I'm at, this is where I wanna go. What do I do to get there? I wanna pay off debt. Here's my debt. And I, you know, in, in three years, I wanna be debt free. Okay, here's the map. And it's literally like, a, the idea would be like, how do you do that in a way that is super simple for people? And then it contextualizes it within their larger plan. Now, um, have we achieved that? Not yet, but that's also about part of building a product, right? Is that you iterate, we're very agile. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges for, for us has been raising the funds to do that. I think in, so, in a, so many ways, we were in front of our, we were, we were a leader in the space and which means that we also were before people realize how important this is. And, and I know you have a question here on, on sort of why, you know, kind of why now. Oh, I have, I have a, just from listening yeah. to you talk, I have a, a few questions. Now, okay, so yeah, let me stop. Just because in your background, you've gone through, you know, you you came through a rigorous training ground uh, to get to this point. Like you did not take an easy path through your education or also your professional career until now. Um, this high stakes, high caliber, high profile work that you've done. Now, I mean, I obviously I'm not a woman of color, but I also come from, you know, a more modest background, first mover, right, first mover, right. And it's very much, you know, it seems like the system is definitely not set up for us. And things are confusing on purpose as a way to kind of keep certain people out and some certain people, whole swaths of people from right. building wealth. So that's a big question. You know, how do you pair mm -hmm. your passion and this is marketable and it is valuable and people, you know, I was on the platform was like, I want to do this too. You know, um, how is that piece been going for you? And do you really feel like or is it, is it just me that the system is set up in a way to keep people out? Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, it's a great question because I think, um, look, if I was anyone else, <laughs> meaning a young white man in Silicon Valley, we would have had at least $10, $15 million in the bank. And I know this because many of our competitors already have that and they, yeah. have, you know, so it's not, I don't even have to guess and I don't have to think like, is our product the right product? There's actually a lot of products now out there that are very similar, right? Yeah. So to me, and, and that's something that, I mean, I think as a, the research mind of like the lawyers, like I'm very diligent about like, I'm not coming out of left field, creating something that has no monetization value, that has no product value. In fact, I mean, I have tons of examples of it, right? And the fact that we haven't been able to raise the money that we should have raised. I mean, obviously there's lots of challenges, but there's no doubt in my mind that it has to do a lot with the fact that I'm a woman of color. I mean, the fact, look, you, there's tons of data points to this. Mm -hmm. Less than 1% of women of color get significant investment, meaning, and that's significant meaning raising over a million dollars. That's yeah. insane. I mean, you, you know, you can go on TechCrunch right now and every day people are raising seed rounds of five, $10 million, right? And they haven't even built a product. We were, we were able to build a product with less than, like literally less than $150,000. That's, and it's, so if you wanna measure like the grit of an entrepreneur and the resilience of an entrepreneur, in fact, women and women of color are probably the, the best, sort of North Star for that, right? They are the example of grit and resilience and building lean businesses that make money because we have to, 
mm-hmm. because no one, we're not getting the same kind of investment. And that's the thing, even when you look at small businesses, so that's, I just to make a distinction, there's sort of, when we think of traditional small businesses, you're generally, you build a product, you go to, you either can get it, go to a bank and get a traditional SBA loan, or you build a product and you just immediately start to sell something. It's not software, right? Because it's a candle, it's a, it's a restaurant, it's something very tangible. Tech requires large amounts of early investment so that you can build software and then essentially make money because it's something that is able to grow without a lot of new new um, capital. And so that there are there are different paths, um, but even in the small business realm, we know that this is a problem too, right? Yeah. So so it's it, again just more data points that like why are women of color women generally building more businesses and getting less capital access to capital and then it's even you know in the in the tech side it's even worse because that is a closed body network it is all about who you know it's about FOMO on the side of of investors it's about networks I mean it is insane the amount of access people get if you're highly networked with the right individuals someone one decent sort of respectable VC just has to say, oh, I'm making an initial investment. And then everybody else is like, oh my God, I want in, I want in it, right? That's how, I mean, that essentially how is how it works. Um, but the thing is, and I think this is something that, especially for folks of color building in tech is that when you're super passionate about something and you know you're building the right product because you've also done the iteration, you've done the homework, you. They all say, if you haven't built something that you're embarrassed about, then you're not building. And it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm embarrassed about the company, but I want our product to be so much better. Yeah. And there's things that we're doing to try to make that happen. And we're, we're pivoting. We're doing that, that pivot. You know, I'm like, okay, how do, I, how do I reiterate this thing to make it better for our customer um, and better for us to grow, to grow and, and, and get in that investment in that capital? But that's what's really important. And for, in terms of monetization, I was very clear that if I was going to leave my job at that time, this thing had to make money. And so I did an insane amount of research on business models, monetization models, what other people did, how they did it, so that I was like, okay, this is not a nonprofit. Like I'm not, I'm doing good and I'm doing well because. I'm the right person to do it because I have a I have a social justice core, right? Like yeah. that that yeah. to me was like it's going to it's going to do well because I'm it's coming from the right place and I'm solving a I'm solving a real problem for real people. Yeah, the monetization part was fairly simple in some ways because the idea was this: we give people the advice, right? They're like, okay, you want to open up a Roth IRA? You've heard about this thing? You want to take action? Okay, cool. By the way, there's all these products out there that that are good for you. That are essentially like here's a here's you know the new um, fintech products, like right? whether it's a Betterment or a Stash or LFS, etc. And guess what? They will pay us to acquire that customer because they're doing that anyway. And that's yeah. the affiliate model. And by the way, that's the model that almost everyone uses. People don't talk about it because it's kind of so old school. But if you look at almost you know, Credit Sesame, Credit Karma, Mint, all of the big companies, um, even Acorns, all of them, they do partnerships and affiliate models. So they're making money off the products that they're selling you. Okay. So, and I was very clear that I wanted to keep the, the essential platform free for our users. And one way to do that is to, to understand that, that, that we're selling them products and yes, we get paid and we vet the products. So we're very upfront about that, right? We're saying, Hey, you're not paying, but we are getting paid if you decide to open up a Roth IRA through our um, platform, we will get paid for it on the back end. Um, and we're now transitioning to a freemium model, which is more of a subscription model. And the reason for that is that we realize that we can provide even more value, right? So we're doing a lot more um, video content, for example. Um, and if we look at sort of, especially our new investment bootcamp, it's a video-based online um, course. That's that's something that we're like, okay, that's worth someone paying $5 a month for. 
and then they get access to more of these courses and then they go back to the platform as the tool to then carry out that plan right so that's you know that's sort of the, those are the things that you do to pivot to um, and you create business partnerships that's the other big thing for us is really how do we integrate what we're doing into either products or companies um, that are that have access to our demographic and to our market so we've recently just launched a new platform called wealth build that's um, working with community banks and credit unions right so taking essentially the same idea like how do you help people um, make better financial decisions guide them through a process well credit unions are a perfect place for that right if you have yeah. a relationship with a credit union for example and that credit union's like yeah we want more deposits and we want more lending right the credit union wants to lend you money to buy a house that's how they make money yeah well hey guess what we have a tool that will help both you as the user and customer and also the credit union by helping them engage that customer and making that decision and getting data back to them about by the way this person just did our money map on buying a home you should reach out to them they're they're essentially ready to make a purchase right Amazing. so so we're doing that and that's been bringing in a lot of income so we you know we've explored both b2b b2c and i think that what's exciting is that our product is actually good for both there there's a lot of companies that are like no you only have to do b2c or b or, or b2b um, and I'm like, well, no, especially for what we're doing. I mean, you think about universities, we did a program um, pilot project with the university of like, how do you bring core financial curriculum to graduating seniors? This is so key. This should be a class that everyone has to oh, take. Oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I mean, you're, you've just, if you have any student loans, you've actually just signed lending documents or loan documents on the big one of the biggest purchases of your life imagine it's like saying here go buy a house <laughs> and you've not, you don't even know what an interest rate is that's yeah. actually what we do all the time right and, and this so, is you're saying so this is for college yes seniors i feel like it should be high school like as you know it should the next, it, it, you know not i'm totally. not that's not a judgment on you but i feel like no, 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 I know. the younger it starts the better. Yep. It absolutely should. Um, I mean, I've been working actually because I have a I have a freshman in college, right? So I actually and and granted he has a lot more knowledge because he's lived with me and you know kind of grown up in this space. But even then, when he asked me something the other day and I just thought, oh my God, this is so I need to like do something for kind of even if it's just a cute little course like the crap the money 101 crash course. Yeah. Um, he didn't understand checks at all. Like he didn't understand checks or checking versus a bank account um, or credit cards. Like he, he was like, well, does a bank offer the credit card? Like, where do I get it? Like he didn't understand the connection. And I was like, oh, like, right, I forget. Like, you know, I remember one time he was like, when he was filling out something to mail, some a snail mail. And he's like, well, where do I put the address? <laughs> I was like, Oh, right, Gen Z, you <laughs> never had to do any of this stuff. Like he's not gonna know how to do taxes. And, and so I think these core concepts are super important because again, it's just the, it's just the best analogy. It's learning the rules of the game, right? Now, yeah, no, I think that's also interesting, a point that, you know, your son has you as a resource, but all of the people like for you and for me that didn't have parents or guardians or grown-ups knowing this vocabulary knowing the system and being able to impart that upon uh, so your core clients or audience are people that like you said first movers multicultural um younger people millennials and i guess going to be gen z's um that need it's really just you need this vocabulary in order to thrive in many ways if, yeah. if you don't if yeah. it's not given to you um if it's That's not right. inherited if it's not just part of your family dinner conversation really right you need a sherpa right i mean that's kind of it's <laughs> funny as that is but it right exactly so one of our mottos is if you don't learn about money at home you don't learn about it at school then you don't learn about it 
and you learn by making mistakes, which is exactly what I did, right? And, and there's no blame in that, right? My parents can't, te- you can't teach something you don't know. Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly right. And, and that's why we started pivoting to this more first mover concept. Again, I'm not actually, you know, I'm third generation Mexican-American. I'm, it's, I don't have an immigrant experience, but I have a poverty experience. I have, you know, my parents didn't know anything. My, my dad kept his, uh, he used to keep his old, um, what do you, when he got paid, his old check in cash, right? He never, he didn't trust banks. He didn't go to a bank. And it's not because he didn't speak English. I mean, he was, he's a Vietnam vet. I mean, he grew up here. He just was like, I don't trust banks. I keep my money in cash. Yeah. Right. So like just that even old school, if you grew up in that sense. Um, and now, of course, there's kids are much more digital, but most people still don't understand. For example, I, I did a lot of work when I was, uh, I was an entrepreneur residence with Oslo, which is a, a small business banking um, platform. And we were doing a lot of user research. A lot of Gen Zs or even younger millennials that are working um, freelance jobs, we'd ask them about what banking products they use. And most of them said PayPal or Venmo. And I thought, oh, interesting. They think that Venmo and PayPal are banks, right? And so like, and, 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 and I think that's where we're, we're headed is that banks are, in some ways are gonna become irrelevant because people don't care about the bank. They care about the money transfer. And access. Right? That's an access. And that's why Venmo is so like big because you allow me to move my money rapidly and have access to it quickly. Like, so even, in, and that's why I think that where we're headed now in terms of the product is actually much more chatbot, right? It's like chatbot, video, um, a lot of AI. Like, how do we have conversations? How do I have this conversation without me being there? How do I multiply my this conversation if I was to sit with my 20-year-old self or even if I was to sit with you as my client, right? Because I do take on personal clients as well. How do I have the same conversation with the same feel in an AI situation, right? And that's what we're trying to build towards. Amazing. Now, how big is your team? How, how many people are you working with? Um, and also to add to that, to go back to your... Um, fundraising if you can after you know tell me let's just start with you know how big is your team because this is tremendous work that you're doing um so who's with helping out tremendous work with a very lean small team um there's about three and a half of us (laughs) uh so i'm full-time um i have a developer that is you know works pretty much full-time with us um and then we have social, we had some social media people. Um, and right now we're kind of in, like I said, we're in this transition. So um, we've never had really more than three people though, building this out. So I think that's, you know, and that's just, again, a function of somewhat of fundraising, um, but also being very lean. I think one of the things that is important is that I feel like I need to touch everything right now because it's so, you know, I'm, I'm so involved in every aspect of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because part of it is because you're learning when you're doing that. Um, and it's, and, and to be honest, there's not a lot of people that really understand all aspects of, of what we're building. When we think about, for example, finance, there's not a lot of people, not a lot of folks of color who have a social justice conscious who are in finance so for me to even bring people on, I have to essentially vet, you know, who is this person? Who is it on our team? Do they understand what we're trying to build? Do they understand our end customer? Um, you know, it's not like I can just be like, oh, okay, any finance guru. Like there's lots of people that talk finance, but they're not going to have the same intuition. Um, and so I think even from that perspective, it's very important how we build our team, making sure that people understand who our end customer is. Um, and most of the people that work with us actually have the same experience, right? And I think that's really important because they understand on the other end of this, what are we trying to solve for? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we've, we've always been a small team. Ideally, right now, we should be 10 to 15 people if we were to be building at scale. And do you think that 
when do you think you'll get there? Well, it, well, I, we're in the middle of a little bit of a pivot right now, and so there might be an in, so there might be an, a merger which will happen, which would allow us to get there sooner than later. Okay. <laughs> um, but the idea is to be able to, you know, to raise a significant round um, the end of this year, going into next year. So, if by twenty twenty two we don't have that, then I need to rethink what the business, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, and I think that's a real that's a reality for so many women and people of color building in tech, which is just, it's an, a shame. We don't even get money to try. Mm. We don't get money to fail. Silicon Valley throws so much money. I mean, I can't, I mean, I wish there's more studies that showed how much money they throw into companies that fail. And we're talking about fail after like a month. I mean, there's just, there's, there's so many stories out there that I could talk about that come and go, right? And raise millions of dollars. And then you're like, what was that? I don't remember, <laughs> like even the, the one from Twitter, there was like this, you, you could go live on Twitter, um, Periscope. Yeah. Um, but like they raised a shit ton of money in like, it was like a month and then like, they just went away. <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's discouraging to hear this just because you would think someone with like your, career pedigree and education pedigree it would just elevate you to the top but it just shows that that's just it's just not enough no it's not um no your biggest i mean i mean if i was to trade all of that in it would be for you know a network of essentially white men <laughs> and I, I i i've thought about that and i've thought about bringing on a white man male co-founder to legitimize what we're doing. Um, I do think that there is this new moment because the other thing, and like I said, because we were a first mover, we are one of the first companies to say in tech, in FinTech to say, we are going after solving for the racial wealth gap. Okay. There are people that were doing kind of like unbanked. There was, there's been other like sort of more smaller verticals, but we're very cl clearly we're going after the multicultural millennial in order to close the racial wealth gap. That was our mission from the beginning. Over the last year, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, because of the of Floyd, because of the, the disparate impact of COVID, now almost everyone's talking about the racial wealth gap. And so, you know, it's part of me is like, oh, <laughs> um, when we, we've been out here. So, but the thing is that we've been out here now long enough that was not new and shiny. So it's interesting, and I think that is one of the lessons to be learned when you're building in tech or you're building products that so much of it has to do with speed. You need that money to be speed to 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 grow very quickly so that you can own the market and own that space. And if you don't, what happens is they think that you're basically, oh, you're not successful because you haven't grown quickly. It's true, right. So there's an insane pressure to do that even when it's not the right model all the time. I mean, a lot of people that, like I, I would say, if you look at companies that kind of were in our first cohort of coming out in 2016 or building 2016, 2018, they're already done. They blew through money and they're done. Now, do you think, you know, what, that is a good point that the horrible, unfortunate circumstances that led to, you know, George Floyd and others being killed at the hands of law enforcement. Um, now suddenly it's like a light bulb moment for organizations and companies that weren't focusing on um, just inequity in general, but also the wealth gap. Um, how do you set my money, my future apart from these other platforms and companies and how um, I just, you know, cause it will become a much more crowded space with more competition. Yes. And how right. do you, how are you priming yourselves to weather this and come out on the other side? Yeah, um, well, there's, it's twofold. One is we're 
so we have an initiative that's going to be launched in April, uh, which is like next week. <laughs> uh, we've been working on it, but um, the, the initiative is called uh, Thrive. And the idea, and it's one of our mottos really, which is don't just survive, thrive. It's on our website. We've been using it for a long time. Because yeah. the idea is this, um, and, you've, and, and if anybody has been in FinTech for a while understands that there's a lot of people throwing around the word financial inclusion and financial yeah. health. It's like the hot buzzword. There's two reasons that it kind of gets under my skin. The financial inclusion part, I'm like, okay, fine. I mean, yes, we want to be inclusive, yes. But it's not just, for me, the problem is that what they mean is let's get those people banked, not let, let's get those people in tech building products. All right, so the inclusion is you can be part of the sort of the base of people that give us money to buy our products, but we don't really want to give you money to build your own products. Right, so there's that. And then the financial health piece, um, this is, so when I say, I don't want people to just be able to pay their bills, that's the health piece. When people talk about financial health, they're like, we want, basically they want people to be able to kind of pay their bills and be okay. I don't want people to be okay. I want people to thrive. I want them to build wealth. Yeah. That's very different than saying, Oh, we want to make sure that, you know, people get a, a leg up to so as long as long as they can like pay their bills and they have, you know, a thousand dollars in emergency savings, then they're okay. No, they're not. No. Then you're, you're keeping the status quo. Exactly. Right. So then when we look at the, the wealth gap over the last 20 years, it basically goes out. So you're just saying, oh, okay. As long as they're kind of in par. No, I want to do this. Right. Because that's, I want to close the gap in between. That's where I think one, we're very different, is that it's not just about financial inclusion, but also it's because we're really focused on, okay, how? How do we do that for people? We want to give people the skills and the tools to do that, to actually take action. So, when I, I mean, there's so many panels now, right? There's so much discussion about this, but I'm like, we're actually doing it. We're yeah. Like, actually getting people to do something. I mean, even at the boot camp, um, we have this online um, investment boot camp, and this came out of data points that I saw during uh, really the beginning of this year, where, you know, after, during March of last year, when the market crashed, um, rich people became insanely rich over the last year because they bought at the bottom of the market. Yeah. And in fact, I, I, I did too. I mean, I didn't become insanely rich, but I invested most of my money at that point because I was like, I understand the market. I understand this is going to go up. I'm getting everything on sale, right? So imagine if you even had real money and that's exactly what happened. People that had real money, I mean, they were making tons of cash. And so when you look at the fact that only 20% of, of uh, Latino um, families are invested in the market. And then you look at the S&P 500 over the last 10 years, essentially they've lost out on 260% of, of income, of, of wealth building because they're not in the, in the market, they're not investing. And I thought, okay, so what do we do? Robinhood is out there. And then the, then the GameStop thing happened, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I don't want them learning that way because that is not, that's not the way to, you have to understand the fundamentals, otherwise you're going to get screwed. And so I was like, I need to take, I need to take action and I'm an action oriented gal. And I think that's the difference. I'm not going to have a panel on it. I literally sat down for two weeks and created a finance of this investment bootcamp that we're, we're now live. Um, and it's basically an eight week online course of the fundamentals the fundamentals of building wealth through investment strategy. For example, huge con confusion out there. Retirement accounts, IRAs, and brokerage accounts. Most people have no idea what each of those things functions as. Again, chips, right? Um, or, you know, if your pieces on the chess board, retirement accounts, 401ks, 403bs, pensions, very specific, very specific strategy of diversification inside of that. IRA or Roth IRA, different tax purposes, different limits, different reasons to have it. Brokerage account, 
which is what's, what everybody gets excited about. When I was, I will say when people ask me, they're like, I want to start investing. I was like, do you own a home? Yes, you've already invested. You just invested in real estate. Yeah. <laughs> right. So brokerage account. Okay, that's different. Here's what you need to know about that. Here's the strategy that you should use for that. Here are the tax implications. Again, people get excited. They see things, they want to mimic them, but they don't know the fundamentals. That's what I think we do well is that we're not trying to sell off something that's like set and forget and easy. We want to make it simple, but I want you to fundamentally understand what you're doing. Take, for example, acorns. I'm not mad at acorns, but I'm just saying, take, for example, acorns. The idea that you're like, if you start to just round up your change and invest, somehow you're going to be, you're going to be set for retirement. It's just insanely untrue, right? First of all, if you're rounding up five cents, 10 cents, maybe you have $3,000 at the end of the year. Okay. If you have $3,000, that's rare, but let's say you get, that is not a retirement plan. I mean, it's, that's a good IRA. It's an addition. It's a good, maybe emergency savings. Maybe it's a good, you know, it's a good extra um, FU fund, but it's not a retirement plan. And granted, something is better than nothing. Um, but I think that what is important, at least from what I wanted to build, was that I don't want it to be, I, I don't want to sell some, somebody something that's not real. It's, there's no, I, and, and we can simplify it and we can make it as simple as possible. But part of this is that it is a little complicated and you do have to put some time in it. And I want us from a content side, from a brand perspective to be like, we need to have these conversations. We should be talking about money all the time. We should be talking about it with our family, talking about it with our friends. I want women to sit down and be like, what'd you invest in this week? Like, what's your portfolio like? What, what's your big next financial goal? Guys talk about this all the time, guys in finance. So that's it. Yeah, that was, sorry to interrupt you, but I think yeah, no, no, that no, is but, yeah. a big part of it is, you know, what especially women think is culturally appropriate and how, you know, one of a recent thing I read was how people are saying you should talk to your friends about like, how much money do you make? How much money? Why is it all a secret? Why is there like, a level of shame, a level of um, insecurity around it. And in some ways it's, it's good for people at the top because it keeps right. us out of the market. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I'm glad you brought up shame because that's, so I would say about 30 to 40% of what I do is actually kind of the content brand piece. I've always said, I want my money, my future to be a brand, like a makeup brand almost, right? Or like Adidas or like, we want to be the brand that people feel like, oh, whatever money issue I have, I'll, I go there and I know I can get an honest quality answer, right? The tools themselves we can build. I, I mean, there's tons of tools out there. I'm not worried. It's really the brand play that's so important. And that into the idea of shame, um, so I'm working on a book right now and it's all, really, it's about this. It's no shame in the money game, a broke girl's guide to building wealth. Love it. And, and why is that? Because we are so shamed about being around being poor, right? Yeah. I mean, even from the old, when I was working on welfare reform, this was the whole thing. It's like, why are poor people not deserving of some assistance, right? It was kind of like the deserving poor. There was all these rules around who could get it what you had to do to get um, assistance. It's the same kind of messaging. When I was working in bankruptcy, for example, chapter 11s, which are what the bankruptcy filings of corporations, which happen all the time, it's part of their financial plan to restructure their debt. Macy's has filed lots of times, airlines file all the time. Yet people who file bankruptcy in cha so chapter nine get shamed. Oh, you didn't pay your bills. You, you know, you, you're irresponsible, et cetera. So it's so interesting how the same tools are used in different ways, right? And, and so the idea was that this system was not meant, exactly, the system's not meant for us to really thrive in it. It's not meant for us to understand it because the less we understand, the more people make money, right? Yeah. You just think about the housing crisis, people didn't understand the adjustable rate mortgages. That's why part of the reason this whole thing blew up 
Yeah. People just didn't understand the basic concept of adjustable rate mortgages and no one was going to tell them that. <laughs> right. So, so when, so the shame part is so big, the, even, even in, with our customers on the money made simple platform, uh, we've done a lot of customer research people. I'll ask them, for example, about the match. Are you taking the match at work? Do you understand the match? Do you know what it is? People are like, I didn't take the match because I didn't know what it was. And I felt embarrassed to ask that. So that then costs you a lot of money, right? Because that was free money that you, or just withdrawing your 401k when you left a job, because you're like, I don't know what to do with it. No one's there to tell you what to do with it. So those kinds of things are important. And then in terms of the second half of that title, which is, oh, I have to be rich to do this, right? So a broke girl's guy, I'm still broke. I still consider myself broke. <laughs> I mean, because I'm still living in a lot of ways, right? I mean, I don't have like ridiculous financial security. Um, I have a business that's, you know, sometimes it's valued high, sometimes value low. I mean, someone will buy it or not. I mean, there's lots of insecurity around that. Yeah. So how do you, even when you don't have a lot of money, what are the tools? What are the moves you can make that still will create some financial security? Take, for example, if you're a single mom, which I was from, you know, raising my son, um, having life insurance because life insurance was for me, that financial security for my son that in case I can't do everything I need to do and make the money I need to make, and he doesn't have, you know, um, a sort of a security net, mm -hmm. at least if anything happens to me, he has this. So that's right. So life insurance, um, you know, can you start investing? Yes. Girl, if you get, spend $50 on your nails a month, you can invest $50, <laughs> right? And it's so like, it, it, it's how do you just change some of those patterns and, and make it part of your lifestyle? That's what I want. And that's, that's you know, the book is really going to be about how do we do those things broken up into the chapters of how to do them, but also reflecting on my mistakes and reflecting on why we think about these things. Even in the budgeting, I talk a lot about, um, there's tons of budgeting tools out there. There's so much on budgeting. And I actually hate talking about because because I think it brings shame because what it feels like is deprivation. Yeah. When you are poor, you already don't get access to stuff. I mean, growing up, I have so many stories and every, like, you, like, everyone has these stories like, oh, I, I remember I couldn't get this. I remember we couldn't eat there. I remember we couldn't do this. And all these other families were doing that. So when you're telling me now that I'm working and now you want me to budget and I can't spend any of my money, I'm not going to do it. It's like a diet. I'm not going to stick to it if you're telling me I can't eat. Yeah. I'm hungry. <laughs> That's deprivation where what we really th try to focus on is about prioritization. Where do you really want to be spent? Do you want to give all your money to Grubhub? That's what you got to ask yourself. Or do you want to give all your money to Target? No, I want, I want to, I want to go on vacation. I, I want, I'd rather buy a Louis Vuitton bag than to spend tons of money every year on cheap stuff that I'm like not ever going to use. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's the prioritization part. Um, but I think those are the kinds of things that I've, I've learned not only in reflection of my own experience that I think resonate with so many other people, but also that turning those experiences into actual like techniques for like, here's the best savings product. Here's how to invest. Here's how to, you know, choose a portfolio that matches your lifestyle, right? I mean, there's all these things that you turn those things into real financial advice turn into action and then you get people to do something that's what a financial plan is it's amazing i i want to be respectful of your time but i had a couple more questions sure go um, ahead good so you're launching thrive in in, a, in next month <laughs> yeah, um, april financial literacy month essentially okay so april is financial literacy month um how can you just talk more just about Thrive specifically and um, whether or not other platforms are doing similar a similar initiative? Yeah, so I can actually go back to your question because I, I know where we were going. How are we going to use this, utilize or leverage this moment in time yeah. with so much focus being on closing the racial wealth gap and um, 
sort of, you know, inequities. Um, and I think two things. So we're doing the Thrive Initiative. We And the Thrive Initiative is essentially just a brand awareness campaign where we have things that people can plug into. So for example, our boot camp, we want to get that into employers. We want to get that to nonprofits. We want to get that into institutions because they can provide it to their clients, to their customers, et cetera. So that's one way. So we talk about Thrive as like, how do we build a resilient and financially um, inclusive communities? That's sort of the, the big picture. How do you help people not just survive, but thrive, right? They need access, they need education, they need tools. Okay, we, by the way, My Money, My Future has some of those things that might be useful for your institution. That's the kind of big picture. And we wanna bring on, we already have a number of different um, organizations that we're partnering with in, as part of the launch. So that's what Thrive is. And the idea is to really, again, have conversations that don't focus on the problem, but focus on the solutions. Okay, um, because there's a lot of corporations talking and not doing anything. Um, so we're like, if you want to do something, here's you can do the boot camp. You can get people on our platform. You can invite us to speak and to talk up, do a workshop. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can engage with my money, my future. Um, the other thing that we're doing is really revamping the platform, the Money Made Simple platform and the tools. One of the things that's happened, and I guess the good news is when you're in tech long enough, things shift so quickly that um, it's become a lot easier to build and there's just much more access now like through API integrations. So now everyone's becoming a bank. Um, if you follow FinTech at all, everyone's a challenger bank, everyone's a neo bank, and now, um, Affinity banks are the new thing, right? I don't know if you've recently heard Greenwood, which is primarily serving the African-American community. Killer Mike is kind of like their ambassador. They raised $40 million. They haven't even launched. And their whole thing is that we're building financial inclusion, wealth gap. They're using all of the language that we've been using forever. Um, you know, hey, it helps when you have Killer Mike as sort of, you know, yeah, um, your spokesperson. <laughs> so. But so we're moving in a direction of like, how do we integrate in terms of as a banking service? Because part of some things you just have to learn as much as I hate it, you just like, okay, if that's the shiny new thing and we can build it, let's do that. So I think the next iteration that we're working on right now um, is, is actually bringing on a banking component so that it's essentially a bank focus on wealth building. Right, so we add up all of our core tools and our core product on top of the essential banking service. Um, it's just more of integration. And, and what's happening is because APIs are making it so much easier to integrate across all kinds of platforms, right? Um, and, and by the way, all of these banks, the neo banks, the affinity banks, they're not necessarily banks, they're actually banking platforms because there's another, there's an actual old school bank right below the surface. So I, I just, you know, having been in banking and worked on a platform like this, it's really what you're doing is creating a different user experience for people. And then you're really marketing to a very specific segment of the audience. And I think this is a trend that we're seeing, and I've been talking a lot about this in more FinTech generally, this is the trend, more personalized, more authentic financial services. I think people are done with sort of like Wall Street, older white men on a, you know, like they're like, that's even, even for the white community, especially even like Gen Z, Gen, you know, or uh, uh, millennials or who are first movers, they're looking at that and saying, that's not me either. I yeah. didn't, my, da my dad didn't have, I didn't use his wealth manager. <laughs> right. And so I think everyone's looking for something that speaks to them because they understand now, which is great, money is so important to all of this, right? Whether it's your social values, your community, um, putting your money where your mouth is. Like people really, I think, now understand how important the financial system is and their decisions in creating the life that they want. And so yeah. they're looking for those things, even with Ella Vest, right? I mean, Sally Krawcheck, who had tons of access. So she was able to raise like tons of money out the gate. 
but you know she's building that elevest out as you know here's the investment platform for women right um so i think we're we're gonna we're gonna just start seeing a lot more companies focused on affinity markets or more what i call the kind of authentic markets um and I think the user has to be careful though, right? Because not all of those people are actually going to be authentic, but the, this is a marketing trend now. So we have to position ourselves at the top of that ladder. And that's something again, with the wealth build, um, with the new product, that's what we have to do because we have to take advantage of this moment. And I've been trying to, you know, scream at the top of my lungs. We've been here, we've been saying this. <laughs> yeah. And also this is what sets us apart. Um, in a crowded That's world. Right. That's and right. the customer will be the one ultimately determining besides the you know investor that may or may not give you $40 million. Um, right. So in some ways it's stressful, but it's also an exciting time um, right. for this right. work. Now, mm -hmm. uh, just to kind of come to the end here, uh, something we ask of every guest is, you know, how do you define sustainability? Um, so for me, it's obviously honoring our environment, but it's also about, you know, social justice and um, health, the health of communities and the financial health of communities. So I'm interested to hear, you know, how, how do you define sustainability? That's a great question. Um, I think that there's two two ways i think one is one is sustainability of literally like me the founder right because if i go away if i give up it doesn't happen so that's something that i've learned over time too is to like especially under such high stress high stakes is that there i have to do a number of different things to make sure that i'm okay <laughs> taking care of my mental health Having a community of founders is really important for me. It's something I give back a lot to, to those founders and I, and I receive. Um, and looking past just my company, right? So like, I'm also an, an angel investor on, in equity crowdfunding. You know, I do a lot of work with new founders through boards that I sit on, right? So my vision can't just be the company. And that's something I've learned too, is that, um, the sustainability is the end goal. It's the North star. It's what I'm trying to do. And so that even if the company as it exists now doesn't reach that potential, that that work is sustainable in the long run, right? Whether we have, now we have, um, we're working on our nonprofit um, sort of arm of wealth builds, for example, and that's going to be able to, you know, whatever, you know, we can be doing stuff with high school, we can be doing stuff with nonprofits, right? So you, you sort of build that out. Um, and I think the sustainability factor in the company is like, how do we pivot to stay alive, so yeah. that we can continue to do this work? Um, or how do you know, how does it transform, right? If it doesn't, if, it, if that really is clear that it can't continue, how do I um, make sure that it lives somewhere, yeah. right? Or maybe I go and do something different that has a bit, bigger impact because I, you know, the fundraising piece is not there, right? I don't, maybe I don't know how to fundraise. So I, I think sustainability is for me just about keeping your North Star. I, I think with our team and when I think about the company, I'm always like heads down, do the work, remember the customer, right? And the customer is me, the customer is my family, the customer is my community. So the customer for me is very intimate. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what keeps me in it is that I talk to my customer all the time. Right. I, cause I also, a lot of people I have as, as personal clients, I get their story. I know exactly what their problems are. I understand them. And it's like, okay. And it's only more um, fodder for like, I'm doing the right thing. This is so needed. This is so needed. When that stops, <laughs> then we start to, to transition. But I think sustainability is about how to keep that mission clearly defined over the long haul. Yeah. Now, how can listeners connect with you and learn more about your products? Yeah, so um, you can 
follow me on Twitter at dinero underscore diva. <laughs> so I'm pretty active. Um, if you just sort of want to listen to my opinions and engage, and I have lots of fun conversations around all of these things on Twitter. Um, you should also follow our Instagram for the, the company, My Money, My Future, because uh, we also post a lot of stuff around um, IG Lives and um, it's kind of webinars that will stream live. So there's a lot of content there that's important. Um, and then you can go to our website, mymoneymyfuture.co, and you can sign up for our newsletter or sign up for an account and get access again to the tools, to the webinars. You will also see a link there um, to join our investment bootcamp if that's something that you would like to do as well. That's amazing. Uh, do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share? I think we covered a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think that's, you know, those are the big ones. I would, the only other thing I would say, and I think that's important in our differentiation around us and other companies is that we're super focused also on intergenerational wealth. And we understand that you can't do that in like one year, right? It's not just like, oh, just push this button and you're gonna build intergenerational wealth. No, we really want this thing, again, to the sustainability, we want it to be sustained. To build intergenerational wealth, you need to do it. You need to incorporate it into your life and your lifestyle and everyday choices and in your plan. That's what we want people to be able to do. We want, and the platform, hopefully will give you those tools to build that plan out, right? So that's intergenerational wealth. It's not just banks. It's not just investing. It's not just, it's, it, and that's the thing. This is where it gets confusing. It's not one thing. You have to, you know, save, invest and protect. Amazing. That's a, a great closing. Save, invest and protect. I love it. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough, Ramona. I mean, the yes, amount of work you're doing you. is just dizzying um, <laughs> and incredibly inspiring. Um, so thank you so much for making the time to speak with me and share your journey uh, with our thank audience. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, it allows us to get the word out. We appreciate our loyal Impact Report listeners and hope you can help us spread the word about the series and the important sustainability work of our guests. Please rate and review the Impact Report wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you were inspired by this conversation, share a screenshot to your Instagram account and tag Impact Report Podcast. Learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode by visiting mymoneymyfuture.co. Join us for the next episode of The Impact Report on Friday, June 25th. We'll be speaking with Stephen Rothstein of Ceres. Interested in learning how you can launch a high-impact, purpose-driven career in sustainability? Check out the resources page from the Bard Graduate Programs in Sustainability for access to free resources to jumpstart your career in sustainability. Hear from leaders in the fields of climate change, consulting, impact finance, fashion, circular economy, and more about how they launched their careers and the tips they have for you to join their industry. Visit gps.bard.edu resources today.